sorry. They're just ranked higher than my Trojans right now, so I have to pick on them when I can. Uh, We are in the Gospel of John. Go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 17. Just to remind us, a gospel basically means good news. And John's gospel is written by one of Jesus' earliest disciples. And John is, is writing to let us know the good news of who Jesus was and what he was about, what he came to do. The first 12 chapters of John really focused on Jesus' ministry. He was traveling around teaching, healing, casting out demons, feeding multitudes. And and some people chose to follow him. He goes, man, this is the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer, and we trust in him, we believe in him, we're going to give our lives to following him. But then there were other people who looked at Jesus and go, no, this guy is nothing but a charlatan. He's a false Messiah, and he's dangerous because he is stirring up rebellion in the hearts of the people, they're going to try to overthrow Rome, thinking that he is their conquering Messiah, and he's going to get all of us in trouble. So they were trying any way they could to shut Jesus down. And then after John chapter 12, we moved into chapter 13. At this point, the whole feel of the gospel shifted as Jesus recognizes that his time is really short. It's the last night before he's going to be arrested, tried, and ultimately murdered by the, by the Roman government and, and really by a lot of the Jewish Uh, religious elites who are going, we have got to shut him up. And because he recognizes that his time is short, that he's about to be crucified and ultimately go to be with the Father, he tries to prepare his disciples' hearts. Now, he's been talking to them, letting them know, hey, this is coming. They never fully got it. They anticipated Jesus was going to be this conquering hero. He's going to kind of reestablish Rome. And Jesus is going, guys, this isn't going to end the way you anticipate And so he tries to prepare their hearts. He tells them straight up from John chapter 13 to 16. Spends four chapters preparing their hearts for what's about to come. Guys, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to go to be with the Father, but don't worry. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. and He will be with you to guide you and teach you, even remind you of the things I've told you about. I'm not going to leave you alone. And then we can pretty much sum up the the heartbeat of those four chapters, chapters 13 through 16, through the last verse of chapter 16. He says, I've told you these things so that in them you may have peace. (laughs) You have no idea what's coming, but guys, I'm telling you these things so that when you look back on it in the midst of the turmoil, you're not going to be overwhelmed and shocked. In this world, you will have trouble. You're going to endure persecution for my name. This is going to break your heart, what's about to happen. But you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome the world. Through the cross, I'm overcoming everything. And even my own death won't get the last word. That's the heartbeat of what he shares for four chapters. And then in chapter 17, he does what any of us would do, I think, if we recognize that we were about to go through, our whole family was about to go through something really, really hard. He prays for them. And for an entire chapter, this is the longest single prayer that we have recorded of Jesus. An entire chapter, which is a prayer. And he prays not only for himself, but for his disciples who are going to be left once he's crucified. And he prays for those of us who are going to come to know him through the disciples' testimony. So let's go ahead and read John chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven. Oftentimes people would pray looking towards heaven, not even raising his hands. And he prayed, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. For you granted Him authority over all people that He might give eternal life to all those you've given Him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me. For they're yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None of them has been lost except for the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I'm not of it. So sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As they sent me, I'm sorry, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself so that they may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself might be in them. Ton of stuff. Really, really rich chapter. We're going to just scratch the surface. We're going to try to look at some of the major themes that run throughout this prayer. Now, let's not forget, this is Jesus throwing up a prayer to God, and he does it in the midst of his disciples in a lot of ways, preparing them as well through his prayer. It's going, God, protect them. But let's take a look at a couple of the, the themes that run throughout. The first one, and probably the most central one, is Jesus' very first request. He says, Father, my hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, when we talk about glorification or glorifying someone, all we mean by that is kind of focusing on or shining a spotlight on somebody's uh, positive characteristics. Highlighting them and celebrating them so that other people can respond accordingly. We, we do a ton of this in our society. I mean, we have sports figures or, uh, you know, uh, actors and things like that 
that because they excel in their area of expertise, either on the gridiron or on the silver screen, we celebrate them. We have entire television shows and magazines that are devoted to following them and just celebrating everything about them. And they influence our lives. We begin to talk like them, dress like them, even ask them who we should vote for or what we should think about for different you know, social issues like global warming. Well, what's your take on it? Or you know, what, what do you think about fracking? I mean, should we go ahead and try to get the oil out? All of these weird things. It's like, who are they to speak into those things? They're really good at carrying a football. But, but we allow them to influence our lives because they're celebrity. And the reality is we tend to glorify people that don't really deserve to be glorified in that way. We give people the, the opportunity to influence our lives that really don't deserve it. From a biblical standpoint, there's one person and one person only who is really worthy to be glorified, and that's God himself. To God be all glory. Which then leads us to the question, of, well, then why would Jesus pray right here at the beginning, God, glorify your son, glorify me so that your son may glorify you? Well, let's not forget who Jesus is. Jesus is God in human flesh. It, the Apostle Paul in Colossians states that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that when we see Jesus, we are ultimately seeing the Father. He is the physical embodiment of God, only wrapped in human flesh, and he modeled God's heart, his personality, his values to the rest of the world. Jesus himself in John chapter 14, when Philip asks him, hey, hey Jesus, show us the Father and we'll believe. And he goes, Philip, how long have I been with you? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus recognized that he was the physical embodiment of God. And so when Jesus prays, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you, he's not asking that God shine the spotlight and, and lift him up for his own sake. This is not a selfish, self-seeking prayer. Rather, he's saying, God, I want to bring you glory, and as I am elevated, ultimately your name will be made great. Well, then this brings us to the question of how would God actually glorify Jesus? What does that look like? I can tell you what I think the disciples would have said at that point. They would have said, well, you know, we know from Scripture that the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer is ultimately going to redeem the people of God from their enemy. And who's our greatest enemy but Rome? Because they're the occupying force over all of Israel. So we believe that for God to glorify Jesus, it means he's going to throw off Rome and use Jesus to kind of bring Israel back up into the status of being the most preeminent nation in the, in the world. Jesus will be at the helm. He will be king. That's how God will glorify him. And in so doing, he will bring, bring glory to God. That's probably how the disciples would have answered that question. But Jesus recognized that there was a far deeper enemy than Rome. And it was an enemy that went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve are in perfect intimacy with the Father. And then in comes the snake, the serpent, Satan. And he begins to cast doubt on God's goodness. He says, did God really say not to touch that fruit? Oh yeah, we can't touch it or we'll die. He didn't say that. You won't die. He's holding out on you. And Satan began to tempt them to look at God as anything but good. He got them to begin questioning God's goodness. And in the process, Adam and Eve saw the fruit and ate it, thinking that somehow God may have been holding out on them. And sin entered the world. And in that moment, death entered the world, both physical and spiritual. Physical in the sense that their bodies began to decay. 
and ultimately they had death, physical death to look forward to, but spiritually, because in that moment of sin, suddenly shame and guilt entered the world and it drove a wedge between God and man. Up to that point, God would walk with them in the garden, interacting with them face to face. And suddenly they find themselves hiding for shame in the bushes, covering themselves, ashamed to be seen. Their relationship with God was fractured in that moment of sin. And sin has been causing that sort of fracture ever since. And Jesus said, it's sin that I am coming to overthrow. This is the enemy that I'm coming to destroy. And how am I going to do that? By going to the cross. And ultimately taking upon myself the penalty that is due to every single man, woman, and child who rejects the direction of the Father. Sin simply means, it's an archery term that means to miss the mark. Anytime you don't hit the bullseye, that's sin. And every single one of us, I'm the first to say, I am guilty, I have sinned, I have fallen short. Our human tendency is to want to try to make up for that, to do enough good things to overshadow the bad. The reality is we can never make ourselves righteous or put ourselves in a right standing with God and Jesus, and God recognized that fact. So how did Jesus glorify God? How did God glorify Jesus? He actually did it through the cross. He did it by allowing Jesus to become the one through whom he brought life back into the equation. The one to break the the, the hold that sin had over our lives. And we get that starting in verse 2 of chapter 17. He says, God, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. For you granted him, the Son, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you've given him. Remember, sin brought death. You have granted the Son the opportunity to give eternal life back to mankind. Well, what does eternal life look like? It's more than just a physical thing where we don't die. Jesus explains what eternal life looks like in verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Did you guys get that? Eternal life is not primarily a matter of our physical bodies not dying. Eternal life is actually about a relationship. That they may know you. And we're not just talking about knowing intellectually. Throughout John, John specifically uses a word that, that gets at the heart of to know God is to, is to have relationship with Him. This is eternal life that you might actually have a relationship with God, not just intellectually know about Him. The goal here this morning is not for me just to download more information about the Bible so that you can be a scholar. My ardent desire, Lee's ardent desire, is that you would actually come face to face with the living God and begin to know Him and begin to recognize His voice and begin to walk with Him, not just here on Sunday mornings, not just during your prayer time in the morning or whenever you happen to do it, but throughout the day, that you might have an abiding relationship with God. Because that is eternal life. And when we look at it from that standpoint, eternal life doesn't begin the moment that we die. Eternal life doesn't begin on the other side of the grave. Eternal life begins the moment that we submit our lives to Jesus and say, have your way with me. And we begin to journey with Him and allow Him to ultimately become the captain of our ship to influence our decisions. That's eternal life. And Jesus says, you have glorified me or will glorify me by allowing me to be the one who brings this into being through the cross. And Jesus in turn glorifies God by submitting to the cross. Something that is is going to be very painful for him. 
We're going to see that in the next couple of chapters as he begins to really pray with God about that. This was a, there was a cost involved to Jesus submitting to the cross. And yet he submitted to that. And in so doing, he highlighted God's character. He showed the world who God was. A God who loved. A God who was willing to sacrifice for rebellious kids. So, glorify your son that your son may glorify you for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you've given him. And this is eternal life that they might know you, truly know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have brought you glory, Father. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In other words, don't leave me. Don't allow the cross and death to ultimately get the last word. Glorify me. Raise me up. And then ultimately bring me back to that place where I was at, at your side, prior to all of creation. Prior to me taking on human flesh and and coming down and emptying myself. I I probably can't say it. I, I guarantee you I can't say it better than Paul does. You don't have to turn here. But in Philippians chapter 2, Paul articulates what Jesus did and how it both glorified him and the Father in Philippians chapter 2. And he uses it as an an analogy of the way we should interact with one another. He says, in your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset that Jesus Christ had. Who being in the very nature of God, in, in being God himself, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, or literally he emptied himself of his godhood by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross, the most painful and humiliating type of death that you could ever ask anybody to endure. Therefore, because of his willingness to do that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' elevation, glorification, focus is not for Jesus alone. It is to bring glory to God the Father, to highlight His heart as someone who loves His children in spite of our sinfulness. Does that make sense? So even in Jesus being glorified, it actually shines the light on God the Father, because He is God's representative. Let's keep going. Verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. Now, the actual literal, literal translation of that is I have manifested your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. To manifest something simply means to make it tangibly available to be seen. Right? So, you know, if I say, oh, I, you know, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm still shocked that Notre Dame lost. Um, (laughs) To manifest something simply means to make it available to be seen. So I model it. Jesus says, I have manifested your name. Well, what is a name? It's more, by the way, to the Hebrew mindset, a person's name is more than just what you call them. A person's name is the sum total of who they are. Their character. Their values. Their heartbeat. I have made manifest, I have made available for people to see your name, your heart, your personality to all of them. When they see me, they see you. 
So I've manifested your name to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Everything. Even the words that I spoke were from you, Father. Now they know. So verse 8. For I gave them the words that you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. Now he begins to pray specifically for them. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. It's not to say that he doesn't care about the world, but remember, he's about to be arrested and crucified. He's praying specifically for these guys who have been following him for up to three years. I pray for them. I'm praying for those you've given me, for they're yours. All that I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them, through them following me, and doing the work that I've given them to do, they've actually shined the spotlight on me. So glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in this world, and I am coming to you. So Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Remember, a person's name is more than just a word. It is the sum total of who that person is. You have protected them by the power of your name that you've entrusted to me. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. And none, none have been lost except for the one doomed to destruction, Judas Iscariot. So that the scripture would be fulfilled. And that scripture was that one who shared my bread has lifted a heel against me. It was foretold that one of of the Messiah's closest people would actually reject him. Verse 13. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. But they're not of this world any more than I'm of this world. So my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world even as I am not of it. So sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into this world. For them, I sanctify myself that they may be truly sanctified. Now, this word sanctified is interesting. It means to set something apart. It has a synonym that we find in the Old Testament, and that is to consecrate something. Those words are interchangeable. In fact, you could translate the same word in in Greek that they translate uh, sanctify as consecrate. It would be the same thing. And the heartbeat goes back to Leviticus. When, when something was used in worship of God, whether it's a person or a tent or a cup or a spoon or whatever, if you're going to use something for worship, you can't just go grab something that's used for common things and then take it into the temple where God who is holy is being worshipped and use that and then take it back out there and maybe use it to, you know, use this bowl to catch the oil when you're trying to change the oil on your chariot or something. I don't know. Right? You don't use things that are used for common things for holy things. You use holy things that have been set apart for that task. And so you would consecrate it or sanctify it, set it apart from common use. And they would do this. If you want to see this in action, go to Leviticus chapter chapter 8. Do it on your own time, not right now. This is my time. But in Leviticus chapter 8, we see a bunch of things being consecrated for the temple. We see them taking people... And they would use either oil or blood and they would put a little bit of blood on the right ear. They were saying, may this person be able to hear your words, God. They would put a little bit of blood on their right thumb. Say, may this person be able to do your work. And they put a little bit of blood on the right toe. 
saying, may this person's footsteps be following your footsteps. The blood set them apart and said, God, purify them. They would take either the blood of a sacrificial animal or a little bit of oil, and they would drip it, drizzle it over the altars, over cups, over bowls, over anything that was going to be used in the worship of the holy God in order to purify it so it was set apart, sanctified from the common. Does that make sense? Now, go back here to John chapter 17. Verse 17. Sanctify or set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. I've given them your word. So help to set them apart by the very word of direction and leading and guidance that I've entrusted to them. Holy Spirit, as as you begin to remind them of the things I've taught them, set them apart from the common. But even Jesus recognizes that that's not enough. That even being set apart through God's word was not enough to deal with the inherent sin within us. And so Jesus says in verse 19, For them I sanctify myself. I set myself apart to the work that God has prepared for me so that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus set himself apart by the cross. He submitted to God's will and was used in worship of God and bringing about his purpose and his plans. And in so doing, he became that sacrificial animal whose blood sprinkled us so that we too could be set apart for the work that God has for us. But what work are we talking about? I can tell you one in particular because in verse 18 he hints at it. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Just as I have been your representative, God, the tangible manifestation of your name, now I'm sending them to manifest your name, to manifest, to, to exhibit your heart, your purpose, your plans to the rest of mankind. Ultimately, Jesus is saying, I died on the cross not simply so that they could have eternal life and relationship with you, but so that they could represent you as well. Probably the best articulation I can find of that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to read this to you. I love this passage. I find myself coming back to it over and over again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, in view of the cross, if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. He is a new creation, sanctified, washed, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus. What is eternal life? To know God. He has reconciled us back into relationship. And he has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we get to now be God's representatives. In the same way that Jesus represented God, now those of us who call Jesus Christ Lord, we are the tangible representation of God's heart to the people we come into contact with. He sanctified us so that we could be set apart to be his representatives. Back to John chapter 17. He continues his prayer in verse 20. He now shifts his focus from his disciples who he's been praying over to those who are going to come to faith through his disciples' testimony, namely us and any other person who has ever come to know Jesus Christ 
through the word. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I have entrusted to them the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that infilled me and empowered me to be a representative. God, I've entrusted him to you, them as well. That we may be one as they are one. I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me. What did, what did Jesus say? They will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. So as we find complete unity, then the world will know that we're his disciples. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And they know that you've sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself might be in them. That the cry of this last section is a cry for unity. Because Jesus recognizes that the way that we, the church, his body, interact with one another is a massive testimony to who we serve and who is in us. Sadly, I have to say that we, the church, meaning the body of Christ, tend to be more known for what we're against than what we're for. We are are so often outspoken about the things that we don't like, about other Christians, we, we are often so much in competition with other bodies of Christ, other churches in the area, as if we are somehow supposed to compete with them. But the reality is there's only one church in Costa Mesa. There's only one church in America. There is only one church universally in, because the church is the body of Christ. There are not multiple bodies of Christ. Now, there may be multiple areas that we meet, but we're all one part of the body, and we do not need to be in competition with one another. We do not need to try to steal sheep from other pastures thinking that somehow that will make us better or that will serve them better. That is a very self-centered, very short-sighted perspective. We are not in competition with Rock Harbor. We're not in competition with the crossing. We're not in competition with St. Andrews. We are one body. And all too often we are more known for what we're against We are more outspoken online about the the discrepancies that we feel with other people. We are so quick to jump on a preacher. And I'm I'm the first one to say there have been preachers that I have mocked. Because perhaps they focus too much on a a theology that I, I don't agree with completely. Or I would articulate differently. And in so doing, I fracture the body even more. Jesus' prayer is just the opposite. May they be one as we are one. May they be known by their unity and their love for one another. What if we, the church, actually became more known for what we're for than what we're against? Yes, there are things that are not scriptural. Yes, there are things that are not good in everybody. I'll start with myself. There are things in me that are not good, that are not praiseworthy, that are not worthy to put up on a pedestal and say, hey, look at this. We can find that in every single one of us. 
I remember a time when I was at another church where the AIDS walk was going on. And we as a church decided we are sick and tired of being known for what we're against. We want to be known for what we're for. And God is a God of love. He was a God who moved towards those people who felt isolated, those people who felt unloved, those people who felt like they didn't measure up to some of God's holy standards. All of us don't measure up. And so we decided as a church, hey, let's gather a bunch of people together and let's actually walk in this AIDS walk because we, want, we are for people finding healing. We are for people finding that they are loved. Does God love somebody who's struggling with AIDS regardless of how they got it? Absolutely. And unfortunately, we the church had become known for the ones who, there are some who would say, you deserve it. You deserve to die. And it's just like, oh my gosh, that is so not God's heart. There were people out picketing saying, God hates and you fill in the blank, but it was horrible stuff going, you are not representing our God's heart. So rather than trying to go and picket those picketers, We just walked alongside our brothers and sisters, children made in God's image, whom he loves. We said, we love you. And and let me tell you, there were people who were shocked that we were walking out there. We had our church's uh, name on our shirts, and they're going, what are you guys doing here? We had like the largest group of people. What are you doing here? And it gave us such an amazing opportunity to say, "We, we love you. God loves you. Don't listen to those people. They don't know what they're talking about. And we're so sorry for the ways that we have misrepresented God's heart to you. What if we were known for what we're for? Rather than constantly just chipping away and trying to undermine other people so that we could somehow be elevated as we kind of knock them off the top of the ladder. Oh, we can move one rung higher up. That doesn't bring glory to God. That fractures the body of Christ. That does just the opposite of what Jesus was praying for. Now I have to say this. I would love that to be the natural outflow of my efforts. But there's no way that we, by sheer grit and determination, can represent God's heart. Can't do it. I've tried. (laughs) I've fallen miserably short. Because the reality is that I know what's in me. And I am a Christ follower, not because I have it all together, but I'm a Christ follower because I'm the first to say I desperately need a Savior. So we cannot do this by our own strength. We cannot fulfill Jesus' prayer by our own sheer grit and determination. We desperately need God to transform our hearts. This can only happen from the outflow of God within us. In fact, that's what Jesus pretty much insinuates in his prayer here. Because as he's going through here, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. so that they may be brought to complete unity. The only way we're ever going to experience unity is if God and His Spirit abides within us and we submit to it. Jesus made this abundantly clear in John 15. If you didn't hear that message, grab a copy of it, listen to that, because John 15 is all about the fact that we desperately need to remain in Him, abide in the vine, and allow His Word and His Spirit to abide in us. And as we do that, as we have this ongoing relationship with him not just when we're at church not just when we're praying at at mealtimes 
But as we're getting up in the morning, as we're getting our kids ready to get out the door, as we're driving in traffic on the way to work, as we walk into work, God with us. You are with me right now, God, and I invite you into the conversation. As we go about our work day, when we have our downtime, when we go to the gym, God is still with us. We are the church. This building is not the church. We are God's representatives. This building is not. Now, we gather here, and so we have an opportunity to impact our neighbors, for better or for worse, in Jesus' name. But ultimately, when we leave here, when you go to school, when you guys go to work, when you go do whatever, you are a representative of God. My prayer, my ardent desire, is that my life would faithfully represent God's heart, just as Jesus' did. And my prayer for us as a community of Christ followers is that we would all represent God's heart in every situation and in every sphere of influence that we find ourselves in. To Him be the glory, not us. May His name be made great, not ours. In the, in the words of John the Baptist, may He increase, may we decrease. And I far too often am more focused on increasing my own name and increasing my own territory and increasing, increasing my own kingdom rather than recognizing that I am part of His kingdom. All right, that's all I got, so let's pray. Father, Father, would You... Would you glorify yourself through this family? I thank you so much that we have been transformed, that we have been set apart, sanctified, Jesus, by the blood of your sacrifice, that we no longer need to remain estranged from our Father, that we can have an intimate relationship with him, that we can have eternal life. And God, we're humbled by the realization that you want more than just to have relationship. You want us to represent you. We recognize that we've done that poorly at times. We desire to do it well. We desire to faithfully represent your heart in every situation we find ourselves in. We recognize we can't do it by ourselves. So Holy Spirit, would you transform our hearts? Would you even stir up in us the things that we need to lay down, let go of, that you... And your character, your heart would shine out of our lives. And that although the world accuses us of being closed-minded and judgmental and unloving, they would see our good deeds, see the way we love one another and others, and ultimately come to know you so that they will glorify God and call you Lord Jesus Christ. God, may we know you so well that we can't help but produce fruit that lasts out of our intimate abiding relationship with you. And I pray, Father, that the light, your light, would shine out from this community into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our schools, for your name's sake. I pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.